Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. It's another lockdown special featuring me, Mike Calvin, Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and Seb Stafford Bloor from Football 365. Fans have long deserved greater respect. They're the lifeblood of the game, out at all hours, in all weathers, supporting their team. That loyalty has been exploited, monetized, to use the worst word in sport but now they're having a positive effect on football as it reshapes. They brought their influence to bear at Spurs, Liverpool and Bournemouth. Now that's got to be a good thing, hasn't it, Seb? It really does, Mike. Obviously, we've touched on Spurs' activity over the last couple of episodes and whilst I'm not very proud of the way my club have behaved, certainly proud of the way that my supporters' trust has acted and handled themselves and conveyed the message to the club. It's also been very, very heartening because I, I think, as you've mentioned, it's it's a time when a supporter's purchase on their football club or the game itself has never really been weaker. And you're seeing, not just with Spurs, but yes, with Liverpool, with Bournemouth most recently, and probably with a few other clubs and a few other organisations, the authority that supporters can still have and exert. And it's heartening and it's been necessary. It just, it makes you feel like you still have a little bit of control over the sport. What about... The concept of having fans on the board, Aid, you know, they tend to be token gestures, to be honest. Um, but is it something that you think could work, given there's got to be a new climate? Yeah, look, in an ideal world, there would always be a fan representative on the board. And, and, and look, if I know it's theoretical, but if I was in charge of a of a football club, I would like to know what the supporters are thinking what what the views are and, and how they feel about certain situations. Obviously, the reason that tends not to happen is a lack of trust because clubs haven't always been as transparent about all matters as, as they might might ordinarily want to be. No, I'd love to see it. I mean, there, there are so many supporters' trusts out there that do have shares in their clubs, but not too many have, have a real say in the boardroom, do they? And uh, yeah, maybe that's something positive that can come out of this. I do feel that... The fans have been brilliant for, for those three clubs to, to, to force the U-turns. But really, it, it, it's the reputational damage that, that scared the clubs into, into those decisions, isn't it? They, they didn't want to be seen as the, as the bad guys. And I also think fans will hopefully come out stronger for, from this whole episode because once we do start playing behind closed doors football, I think we'll realise then just how important fans are. They're an absolute must in football and, and I think they've not been treated well enough for, for, for way too long. Hopefully if there's one one positive to come out of it, they, that will change in the future. Yeah. What about lower league clubs, Seb? I suspect, you know, given the, the extent of their financial problems, which will be huge, that's you know, we can't get away from that. Do you think there's a chance they could become almost self sustaining through support or input? Almost like a new model emerging. I almost think like uh, as if that will have to be the case, Mike. I'm reading an awful lot of things about the plight of clubs, not just in League 2 or League 1, but in the Championship, who are vulnerable as a result of a a pretty reckless wage spend. Hearing sort of statistics about clubs spending, committing 150% of their turnover to wages, it's just crazy. And and so the answer to that, I suppose, has to be some kind of reform. And, And the only group of people you can really trust with that are fans groups, because they have the sort of the long-term interests of a club, of a, a community at heart. Whereas an owner sometimes 
looks at a club in a sort of a five to 10 year cycle and look at, you know, sort of the profile it can afford them, the opportunities that it can uh, afford their sort of labyrinth-like business interests. So I think that's where we're definitely going to have to head. I mean, I'd be interested to hear what you had to say, actually, Mike, because obviously one of the, the key voices in this has been Andy Holt from Accrington, and you know him quite well. I think he's speaking a lot of sense on Twitter and as always, actually, but, but particularly now. Have you spoken to him since? Yeah, he's a really, I think, far-sighted guy. Funny enough, in his own business at the moment, he's reshaped it. He's got a plastics business and they're now making 60,000 protective masks for the NHS. But in a football sense, he understands what a club at that level represents, which is you know the community aspect of it. And he is determined that that club survives simply because of its its importance as representatives of that community. You know, you talk to John Coleman, his manager, and he will say, look, I know five, six hundred of our fans by first name on first name terms, which is that intimacy, which I think is, is going to be essential for football at that level going forward. It's a very well run club, but also as a very successful businessman, he understands what the parameters of the financial problems are. And it was interesting, Seb, you mentioned their championship clubs. Want to get your views on this actually, Aid? Matt Hughes in the in the Daily Mail this morning did a story where championship clubs or certain championship clubs are going to be pushing for a salary cap of six thousand pounds a week, three hundred grand a year. That's going to cause all sorts of carnage, isn't it? Or for how long? In the long term, or just during the the current? No, I think it's going to be a permanent uh, salary cap. Well, I, I, this is a, the the quality of the championship will will be impacted, no doubt about that. I mean, there are a lot of players. I'd say the vast majority of championship players are, are earning way in excess of that, and and you can argue whether the rights and wrongs of that. But but to take that much of a step back would be would be monumental. I do think it would affect the standard. I think many many players would. It depends what happens around the, the continent, doesn't it, and around the world. It would lead to a mass departure that is for sure to foreign climes I would imagine and it might see Premier League clubs you know bloat their squads even more which which I don't think any of us really want to see interesting that it's been set at £6,000 I say that because I was speaking to Luton CEO Gary Sweet yesterday and, and through the conversation it, it emerged and he was happy to go on record with it he said look we, we don't pay any of our players, our ceiling at Luton Town is £6,000 a week. Now, I don't know if that was a coincidence or not, but that is that is their limit. And he said that's extraordinarily low by championship standards. So, look, I, I do think a salary cap might might have to come into play, but I would imagine it's higher than £300,000 a year. Could you imagine, I mean, youth team, players coming out of the youth team that have played one first-team appearance max are earning that at some Premier League clubs. I don't think that disparity could exist. In terms of the fans, by the way, going going back to fan ownership, I wonder, with the financial damage here, will not every owner's like Andy Holt, of course, a few will scarper, won't they? A few will, will cut and run. And, so, it, yeah. and, and it might well open the door, especially we're looking at a recession on top of this. It may open the door for opportunities for supporters' trust to to take over their clubs. It's only really happened on on a small scale so far, and I, I imagine that can continuing. But but look, if if it happens, it might not be such bad news. Yeah, I hope I'm not being uncharitable. But when you mentioned cutting and running, I immediately thought of Mike Ashley and Newcastle <laughs> United. You know, it looks likely that there will be a takeover uh, at Newcastle. Almost looks like he's cashed out under pressure. The, the the figure being mooted is 300 million for a consortium headed by the um, Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. Let's let's take this into it two areas, if we could. One, what is the effect on the football club and the staff? And I'm thinking particularly of, of Steve Bruce, the manager. But firstly. What I've been struck by is how exultant the fans are. And there's been no almost consideration of the ethical side of things. What what do you think about that, Seb? I find it really troubling because like you, Mike, you have to separate this into two parts in that my instinct is to think of, I'm a football writer, so my instinct is to think in football terms and to think of a football response. And at the moment, I'm writing an article on all the things that have to happen within the football department. 
However, and I would direct listeners to James Montague's work in particular, in terms of sort of who the, these people are, what they represent, and what the dilemmas are going to be going forward. Now, we have some previous in English football with this. Um, we also have a series of precedents over uh, which which kind of illustrate how people react in that you almost have to have to, 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 to be willfully dumb don't you you have to be you have to be in a state of a permanent willful denial as a fan sometimes because you want the success that you've been chasing your club is your club and it's been your club since before um you know it was obviously since before mike ashley owned it before john hall you know so you can't expect fans to sort of turn their back but at the same time this is a a real dilemma um, and I think people should take the time before this goes through or as and when it does to learn what is represented by this takeover and what kind of aims it probably seeks to serve. And I don't think we should go down the road of judging football fans or or conflating supporters with owners because those are two very, very different groups of people. At the same time, I really do think football needs to start taking this a little bit more seriously. Again, just because he is probably the authority on this stuff. If you have a read of James Montague's Twitter feed, that's a fairly good uh, summary of, of the situation. Yeah, you see, I, I, I get it that the fans have obviously been isolated and alienated during the, the Ashley reign. Yeah. But, you know, yesterday, you know, I noticed it was basically, we're going to be the richest club in the world. This is going to be the start of a fantastic new era, mm. you know, away the lads sort of stuff. Can we just look first aid at Ashley's reign in context? I thought it was a, a, a beautiful quote that I saw from Tino Espria, who said, Ashley saw Newcastle fans as barcodes. <laughs> this team is for lovers, not just merchandisers. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah, no, it was, it was a genius tweet. He's got he's got the love on the back of it, hasn't he, Tino Espria, as he, as he used to when he was representing the club it is a, a great line with the barcodes and, and it's hard to argue with that sentiment look on, on morally I mean yeah the Saudi Arabian takeover has, has big question marks doesn't it you know which is which is the lesser of the two evils there Mike Ashley or, or, or them but but if we're going to turn it towards the football side I do fear that Steve Bruce would would be on borrowed time I don't think Steve Bruce will be sexy enough for this new ownership it wouldn't take them long to make a change. There's already rumours surfacing that they're that they're they're sounding Rafa Benitez out in terms of a possible return to St James's Matt, Park. Max Allegri's been mentioned as well, hasn't he? Yeah, exactly. That look, that it sounds like they are serious about investing, and they will no doubt up up the talent pool at Newcastle. Same issues will arise as always in terms of can they attract truly elite players to the northeast of England? You know, personally, I think it's you know it'd be a great place to live, but. I don't think that that uh, you know a lot of you know, wealthy footballers out there don't don't see it that way. So that that problem will will still exist. But yeah, no, I'm sure that the squad will improve. And let's face it, if this new money comes in now, while everybody else is struggling and cutting back and trimming, it is quite quite timely. You'd imagine for for that new ownership to to really flex their muscles and and pick off some serious talent once that transfer window opens. Yeah, and, and you know, without sort of delving too deep into the realm of cliche, you know, the cathedral on the hill and all that sort of stuff, a vibrant Newcastle we've been missing for too long, haven't we, Seb? Absolutely. It's it's the club that I miss most from the sort of the, you know, again, a bit of a cliche, but the Premier League scene. It does make me wonder, though, Mike, obviously in the last few days there's been an, an awful lot written and revealed about Mike Ashley. And I still don't really understand how he failed to how he failed to make any progress because because of the culture that exists up there and the kind of the the attachment to the football team to ignite Newcastle as a club and to accelerate their trajectory. It's not the easiest thing in the world, but it's a very difficult thing to get wrong if you have the right intentions. And I still don't feel the more I read about Ashley and the more I read about his reign and the motivations behind it and the mistakes that were made and, and the the issues that existed between him and um, and different people he came in contact with, Kevin Keegan notably. There's a an amazing passage in, in Danny Taylor's ghostwritten autobiography with with Kevin Keegan when he's talking about Dennis Wise. I, should, I recommend everyone look that up. Mm. But the more the more I read, the more confused I become. The more contradictions there are, the more sort of 
the more baffling that story is. And I, just because of what we spoke about before, the, the Saudi Arabian takeover, I think it's important to, to recognize like that Newcastle fans have been deserving an awful lot of sympathy. In some places, I, I, I see them being slapped down and I, I see them being characterized as, mm. as complaining or being ungrateful. But I think if you're if you're a fan of any other club, um, with exceptions, obviously, but with most other clubs, if you look at what's been created, this sort of black hole for aspiration, uh, it's complete footballing inertia. That's mm. the worst place in the world for a fan to exist. And I, yeah. I think that's 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 Ashley's greatest crime. That's it's what that, he created. Yeah. Absolutely, I completely agree. It's about ambition, and he hasn't really shown that um, that ambition as the leader of the ship. And and for that reason, they've not all pulled in the same direction. I remember playing, I played one of my games for Arsenal's first team was against Newcastle in the year in 95, 96, when they were absolutely flying. And it was, St. James's Park was a frightening cauldron. It really was. And we got battered that day. Well, 2-0, but it was, it, it was a really, really tough game with a fervent atmosphere. And you could just feel everyone in the same direction. Amazing talent, on the pitch as well that hadn't been accrued cheaply. You know, they'd shown a lot of aspiration in the market to bring in the quality. And because that excited the public and because they had a manager that wanted to play attacking football, the, the wave, the momentum of that wave was was incredibly powerful. Not powerful enough in the end to win the league. But yeah, I mean, they're just a million miles away from that now. Answer me one thing. I've always wondered this. When you're in the middle of that pitch, and mm. I go, you're a winger, but mm. <laughs> could you actually hear one another, you know, you know, man on or whatever, you know, whatever you were talking to one another? Could you actually hear each other speak? Very rarely. <laughs> yeah, very rarely. Only in those those lulls where nothing's really happening, you can communicate. But no, when the when the crowd are up, and especially at St. James Park, I remember it. I was played down the same side as um, I played on the right. And David Ginola was was on the left, and and every time he got the ball, there's just the noise was just electric, and it, it, it was yeah, but it was so so much fun as well, such a buzz to to be there in in that stadium, which was you know there was not a spare seat there that particular night. It, it was under the lights. It was absolutely joyous. Uh, at least Ginola must have smelt lovely. <laughs> oh, he smelt gorgeous, as you, as you'd expect. Um, but no, you can't. You can very rarely hear each other. It's it's about communicating you know with with your hands with your with your with your body language as much as it is your voice really yeah it's it's quite strange and it does feel when you've spent your life dreaming of playing in those position in those matches in those stadiums just being in it it feels like you're part of a movie it really is like you've been plonked in the middle of a movie set and the whole pitch the whole stadium looks completely different to what you've been used to on training grounds in, in empty stadiums for reserve games. It, it's quite bizarre, but you, you, as soon as that's taken away, you really miss it, I have to say. It, it adds a completely different dimension. Lovely. Now, there's a meeting tomorrow, Seb, as we know, of the Premier League clubs. We're being told, um, which is obviously some sort of uh, news management arrangement, that a lot of clubs are, although still in favour of doing everything they can to finish the season... They are looking at, we've got to get this done by June the 30th to avoid the complications with contracts. My instinct is that one smacks of desperation and it could be dangerous. Is this going to work? I don't really see how. I mean, we, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about this and I I feel like this this artificial June deadline is a step back. This is where we were 10 days ago. I also, on the basis that sort of we're already in the in the the area of discussing amnesties and provisions and contingencies for contracts which extend, which are due to expire on the thirtieth of June, I don't really understand the need for it. And also, you know, I'm, I don't know what you two think, but I'm getting to the point where the credibility of these daily reports about what's going to happen and where we're going to play football and you know we're going to an island off China and then to the moon and then you know everyone's going to you know. Everyone's going to stay in a hotel on Mars and we're going to play. Uh, honestly, it's it sort of, the more this happens, the more information leaks out, the, the worse the Premier League looks. It's just, desperation is absolutely the right word, Mike, because it, it's this, it's this boneheaded, we're going to do it whatever the mm. cost. And that is just, that's a terrible message at the moment. Yeah. I mean, look, look, look at the, uh, survey the landscape. If you're a Premier League, if you're, if you're a stakeholder within the Premier League, look at what's happened to the country. And these sort of fantastical, weird ideas, it's just, sense the mood, sense the mood. 
Mm. Um, and it's I, I don't know what to believe anymore, actually. No, it's, it's, it's crazy, in my opinion, to try and force this through. I, I, I can't help but feel self-interest is coming to the fore and, and, and also an element of laziness in terms of not wanting to take the complicated route. And it is going to be more complicated because a lot of contracts end on June the 30th. Things are going to have to change from the norm. Legally, I'm sure there is no way you can enforce players that have their contracts, you know, ending on that date to, to play on beyond it. Maybe in a, in a legal sense, I'm sure that that is very, very difficult to do. But where there's a will, there is a way. And I think that, that this is the time for football to come together and to just extend it, extend that date until the end of the 2019-20 season. Now, one way, and this was really interesting, there was a quote from FIFA's legal director, Emilio Garcia Silvero. He conceded that, you know, legally there's a problem. But what they can do at FIFA and what I would implore them to do if, you know, if it comes to it, is they can refuse to register any players with switching clubs until the current season is completed. So so that is something there whereby if players do dig in and agents have their say and say, look, you're not staying beyond June the 30th, then fine. But you can't you can't go and join your new team until the until the season is finished. That you know that that is one way around it, but but I don't see why there should be a rush. It's it's nonsensical in my opinion. Don't like it. You know, there's a lot of tension around between you know players and clubs. You know, there are bright spots. I, mean, I think we should praise the Lionesses this week for contributing collectively to to, to players together. You've had the EFL deal and the implications of that. The acceptance of a 25% pay cut for April. The, although players who are earning under £2,500 a month are protected. But you've still got all these examples, and, and it's happened at your club aid, uh, Arsenal, where players cannot seem to come to any sort of arrangement no. with their club. No, it's, it's, uh, but I understand that because I put myself in the player's shoes here. Every player has their own story to tell and their own relationship with that club. Now, some and I'm not talking about Arsenal here, but some players being asked to take wage cuts around the country may feel really badly mistreated by their managers, by those clubs already. And their attitude, I'm telling you now, and my attitude might be the same in the situation, is why should I help you? You weren't, you weren't helping me. Now, and uh, uh, so that's a problem because half the players will be settled, happy, you know, and, and others won't. And But what you need a general consensus don't you it's it's going to be really really difficult on the EFL I think 25% is, is a fair fair cut for the period of the lockdown for the period where fans can't come into stadiums and create revenue again Gary Sweet yesterday from Luton was saying that he expects a lot of clubs to actually push for 50% rather than 25% because they're in that much of a of a pickle um Good luck with that yeah, exactly. Good luck agreeing it. Deferrals, of course, for EFL clubs aren't aren't the cure because it just puts the problem further down the line, doesn't it? That's a problem. I, I don't see the point of any deferral in the EFL. It has to be a cut, I'm afraid. As for the Premier League, well, I mean, I, I'm, confl- I'm really conflicted here, but but I'm I'm confused. I don't know if you can help me here. Why? Um, and Arsenal is an, is an example. What I'm reading about Arsenal is they're looking to, to implement wage cuts that last for, for at least a year, potentially to the end of next season. Now, I don't understand why that would be. At the moment, of course, finances have been here. Income, revenue streams have yeah, vanished in terms of match day stuff, merchandise, etc. I get that. For the period of the lockdown, for the period where games are behind closed doors, yes, a deferral or a cut could could be agreed. But why are they pushing beyond that? Why is it going into next year? I don't understand it. I could be absolutely wrong here, but is it because for the sake of avoiding a second negotiation mm. so that they say, like, let's have, let's have a provision for a year mm. and then should circumstances improve and conditions allow the game to continue mm. to return to something like normal, mm. then we can revert back to... You know, normal scenarios with with contractual payments and what have mm. you. I don't know. It's, it's a little bit of a guess. It's a sort of we're all playing a little bit of a game of Chinese whispers at the mm. moment with this stuff. But that's something I've heard. Um, yeah, I, I think deferrals, though, for, deferrals no for Premier League clubs. Yeah, deferrals for Premier League clubs. 
I, I get I get why Arsenal's players would 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 look for that rather than a, than a cut because let's face it the the TV companies are going to be they will pay won't they I mean providing the season does finish they they will they will fulfil their their part of the bargain, but will there they? be a potential problem you know I think we're all we all accept now that uh, if and when the season resumes it will be behind closed doors. Now, we're at the stage of the year where people are talking about season ticket renewals. If people get used to the idea of football being a an exclusively televisual experience, maybe quite a lot of people won't renew their season tickets. It's almost a fear of the precedent, isn't it, Mike? I mean, you're right in the sense that maybe people don't renew their season tickets, but also you open a little bit of a Pandora's box in the sense of, right, what from a from a league and stakeholder and club perspective, what do we do to replicate what fans provided in the first place? And that is an experiment I don't want to see because I don't really trust football to go through with it. Does that make sense? Like, a, yeah. you know, you're, you're in some very dangerous territory there. And um, without trying to overstate it, if there's a way for football to erode away the importance of fans, we've we start this podcast by talking about how important fans are. Now, if football spends the, the this intermediary period um, finding a way to discredit that, that's really problematic for everyone involved. Um, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, definitely. Can I just say before we move on from from this sort of financial hole? I mean, every every podcast we, we we're compelled to talk about it because it changes. One other thing that occurred to me, and it's it's obvious really, is any club that is asking their their players to take wage cuts. I mean, any club, they cannot spend a penny, really, can they, in the transfer market? Certainly not millions of pounds when that window opens, because I mean the the look is is, is it's terrible. terrible. The yeah, look is terrible, terrible, isn't it? I mean, the dress. If I was a player, right? If I was a player right now, and they said. You need to take a wage cut until football's back. I would, I would happily do that. Not a problem. I don't think I'd be agreeing to, to a year down the line unless it was a deferral, right? But but if if I took a wage cut for let's say six months, and then in three months' time when the season finishes and the transfer window opens, my club spends forty five million pounds on a central midfielder. They bring in you know 70 million for the star man and they go and spend another 55 on a, on a on a replacement how do you think that those players are going to feel about having 20 percent 12 and a half percent 30 percent of their money taken away in the interim period there'll be mutiny there'll be strikes i don't think clubs that that are cutting wages can can enter the transfer market i, I don't see a way out of it i mean yeah. do you agree i think whatever that? happens uh, guys that you know, managers are going to have a harder job than ever when we do resume. Can we just go on to this sort of running series that we have in judging the current crop of Premier League managers in terms of their leadership qualities, their tactical um, acuity, uh, their coaching style and their communication skills? We've got a pretty heavyweight group to talk about, starting with Jurgen Klopp. In many ways, I think he's the perfect 10 without going before the decisions that we're going to take about uh, these guys. The thing that's always struck me about him is his ability right from the outset to turn doubters into believers. And, you know, there was a, I remember reading a quote from Adam Lallana at the time where he talked about the first team talk that Klopp made, which was talked about the club, uh, sorry, the team trusting itself about belief and not fearing anything or anyone. So he had that confidence and aura of belief in him. And he also transferred that belief to the fans. You know, just as at Dortmund, what he did was, you know, they were pretty underwhelmed by his appointment from Mainz. And his priority was to meet with the, with the ultras. And he played dice with them and just talked about football as one of their own. He did the same thing when he got to Liverpool Basically, going going to the pub, having a you know having a fag outside, leaning against the wall with the fans, a really you know let's even beyond football, a a perfect you know that you know without again this is probably a cliche but hey ho, the the Shankly for the new generation. What do you think, Seb? I'd stop short of the Shankly stuff just because it, it makes me slightly uncomfortable in the sense that I, I wasn't alive to appreciate what the city of Liverpool was back then. So it's not really my place to comment. But obviously, 
there there are some really, the very obvious parallels. The communication, like Shankly was a fabulous orator. Klopp, even in a second language, is very affecting in everything he does. You know, I think what what people don't sort of reference enough is just how smart he is. Because yes, he's a he's an affecting figure. He's charismatic. He has a sort of Pied Piper effect at football clubs and he enraptures supporters and, and players. But he's also, he's an expert strategist. That extends beyond just what he does on the pitch, the way he, how he holds himself, the way that he presents his image. This is a crafted personality which just works absolutely beautifully and has allowed, you know, another club to to achieve well beyond their means. And I think sometimes we we fall into the trap of of, of describing him as a motivator, as a bit of a red nap as that kind of guy that sort of, you know, he shouts a little bit in the dressing room, whereas this is, is one of the smartest minds in the game today. And let's be blunt about it. At the moment, his, his well, before the, uh, before the pause, his side were playing a brand of football that Pep Guardiola couldn't prevent, which is, that's, that's quite an endorsement. Mm. Yeah, no, I can't, I can't disagree with anything you guys uh, have said there. He is, he is, it's, insanely clever. And, and, and I think he's got that, that ability, Jurgen Klopp, to make the biggest of clubs feel tiny and 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 he can reach out to every fan i think every fan feels like they know jürgen klopp and and that i think is is very very clever of him and and look the, the one thing i'll say as well from players point of view is that it, look, it looks like he'd be great fun to play for the style of football is always great exciting but you never hear of players that he's left out players that he has sort of moved on never bad mouthing never ever did you really hear of any criticism of him as a person as a coach as a manager and I think that's the that's probably the biggest endorsement of all yeah Frank Lampard's our next man up at the plate he does seem to be in his element at Chelsea you know we've talked ad nauseam in, in, in the last few months about the way that he has actually transformed the atmosphere of the football club Basically, he, you know, his his ability to enthuse people through the ambition of young players, I think, is very important. Very good communicator, and I think if he gets time at Chelsea, I think he'll prove himself to be an absolutely outstanding manager. What's been your impression of him, Seb? I really like Frank Lampard. Actually, just a little bit of a non sector. I used to do a pub quiz with Frank Lampard. <laughs> <laughs> I used yeah. to live quite. Was he close good? To- he was excellent. He, you know what? He, um, he only came two or three times. He he would come in and he was, you know, with a little group of friends. And yeah, they they there was no attitude. He was a player back then, of course. I think he brought Ida Good Johnson with him one time, which was quite strange. But yeah, so but they he, he's a, as we all know, he's a really smart man, and I he that that comes across in his press conferences. I think if we was were being point, Seb, or or was it was he uh, you know just having a sip in his diet coke just just interested. Uh... No, no, I from what I saw ultimate professional, ultimate <laughs> professional. Okay. Um it was also, bombs, then. No, no, it was, it was also a Monday night so he'd, he'd have had excuses to let let himself go a little bit because it was you know it wasn't before the weekend. Um if we were being hypercritical we we sort of pick apart some of the naiveties. I mean obviously Chelsea went through that sequence of difficult home results against Southampton, West Ham, Bournemouth, and they're all kind of diagnosed in the same way, which which suggested a a problem that he wasn't able to fix. But look at where they are on the table. And also, he's managed to box around a pretty difficult centre-forward situation. He's got more out of Tammy Abraham than I think most of us assumed was there. Lovely guy, Tammy Abraham, super impressive to talk to, but I think most of us assumed his future was probably in the middle of the Premier League rather than the top of it. And, you know, the, 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 the way that players like Billy Gilmore have handled the sort of the adaption to first team life is, is also huge credit to him. Mm. He's created an environment where young players feel uninhibited. And it's not a coincidence that all of these players are currently playing, possibly with the exception of Callum Hudson-Odoi, who's had his injury difficulties. They're all playing at the highest point of their careers to this point. And also, you know, from... You know, some of them even even experienced fairly difficult weeks and months. I think of Mason Mount, and he had a little bit of a sticky patch sort of before Christmas. He's got better and better and better, and that has to be testament to his manager's work. And so, I, as a first season, with even with all the caveats and the asterisks that that he was due because of the uh, the transfer ban, I think he's been enormously impressive. Would you like to have played for him? I um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I like I like Frank Lampard. I, there's, there's... 
everything that you guys have said, I would I would agree with. Surprised me in a good way, really, this season. He's handled it. I think he's in the comfort zone because he's in, he, he's at the club where he feels part of the family. So, so eventually, the true test of him as a coach might be beyond Chelsea and and what he can do elsewhere. I, I think he's learning on the job tactically. I would yeah. say there are big question marks o- over his in-game management. I think sometimes his decision-making in the middle of games has been questionable. Sometimes it's been great, actually. There was one call he made at Emirates when they were getting battered by Arteta's Arsenal right at the start of his reign. He changed the system, he recognised what went wrong, and they went on to, to win. So he's got that in his makeup, but I think he's... He's maybe a bit too loyal to Tammy, Abraham, to Murray. I, was, uh, I thought it was strange decisions. He couldn't make his mind up over Alonso, who I think I think the, 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 the risk to reward is, is well worth picking him because of what he offers going forward. It took him a long time to work that out. But, but yeah, look, he's, he's definitely had a, a very good first season. But, but when you compare him to, to other managers, he's, he's a fair bit behind, I think. Yeah. Chelsea... When we think about Chelsea, we think about Jose Mourinho. We talk about, in, in, in our assessment here, of his body of work, our manager's body of work. And with, in Mourinho's sense, you talk to any Premier League manager and there is huge respect for what Mourinho has achieved across the course of his career. There is a huge divide between that and how he's being regarded now, especially at Tottenham, where he is seeming to be yesterday's man in both his attitudes and his approach tactically. Is it your club, Seb? How's he doing? It's almost a secondary question because I, I think he inherited a, a lot of difficulties. A couple of months ago, I spoke to someone at Tottenham about this and they couldn't have been happier working under Jose Mourinho. They, they, they were effusive in their praise for, for the way he handled himself and the way he treated sort of, you know, employees and the, you know, the staff they inherited and, so that was all positive. I think to be fair to Mourinho, from a footballing perspective, you have to recognise the difficulties that exist at Tottenham and also the holes that exist in that in that side. He's without credible fullbacks on both sides. Ben Davis was, you know, recently recovered from injury, but has been absent for most of Mourinho's months at the club. Big issues without Harry Kane, Son Heung Min, of course. The Tangi and Dombele situation is just flatly bizarre. So I don't feel in a position where I can grade him from a purely footballing perspective. I think, I mean, it's hard to get past the abuse of the social distancing rules. I've just thought that was, I mean, during that particular time as well, when the club was just making PR blunder after PR blunder and just making every fan cringe more and more. And then there was just another thing. And it was, I, I think it was probably well-intentioned, but it was really poorly thought out. I'd also, my other concern is that there is an awful lot of information about Tangi and Dombley finding its way into the French press at the moment, which suggests a couple of things about the player, but it also suggests that the control of the football club at the moment isn't what it should be. I mean, if you compare that to what it generally was under Pochettino, it's pretty watertight. And all of a sudden there's sort of chuntering going on and, you know, I'm not happy about this and maybe Barcelona want me and that's a bit concerning. But it, let, let's let's revisit this in six months' time or a year's time, I guess. What do you think we'll find then, Aid? I don't see him being there long term. I don't. Yeah, I, I do think he's a bit of yesterday's man. Obviously, he's got a very clever football brain. Some of his strategies are still are still excellent, but it's in his demeanour, sort of his attitudes. So bitter now, isn't he? Really, that bitterness sort of comes through and. And it's in players. Players at Chelsea adored him. They absolutely adored him. They were a bit scared of him, but he was one of them. He was a brothers in arms and it was like, we are going to do this. We're going to climb to the top of the mountain together. I'm going to pull you up there. And they believed in him. I think players right now, half of them don't want to make eye contact with him. I think that's how he's changed as a person. So was brilliant. Now, I would say he's distinctly average. Okay, you know, time's running away with us as usual. So let's um, just get our uh, numbers out very quickly. I'd go for Kloppert as a 10, Lampard as a 7. And if we're judging Mourinho on what he's doing now, a 6. But over the course of his career, an 8. What do you think, guys? (laughs) I would go Klopp, 9. Love him. Lampard, I I, I can't go beyond a 6.5. I think he's doing great. 
but there's so much more to come. Jose Mourinho right now, yeah, five. But over the course of his career, you have to put him in the, in the nine categories. But he's been he's been superb. Yeah, I'll go along with that. I'll give Klopp a, a nine and a half with half a point deducted for the way he shouts at fourth officials, which I hate. <laughs> and no one ever seems to mention that. So I'm taking my chance. Mourinho, yeah, I mean, it, it's almost, again, two different grades, isn't it? Nine, because he legitimately changed the game. He was a generational manager, but the key word in there is was. So drop him down to a seven or an eight. And Lampard, I, I think I think I'll bump him up to an eight. I think there is a lot to learn. I, I completely agree with everything that Adrian said. But, uh, you know, I, I think his his squad handling, Woolly Fraser, that is, has been really impressive. So, uh, yeah, eight for him. OK, now on Sunday, latest in the series of BT Sport, Great European Nights. It's focused on Arsenal this Sunday, four games. I'd like to look at two of those games, if I may, both against Italian opposition First was a 5-1 win against Inter at the San Siro in 2003. And then also the 3-1 win over Juventus in December 2001. Obvious one for you this, Aid. That performance in Milan, which was basically, you know, it was a vengeance for a 3-0 defeat at Highbury. Mm. Thierry Henry basically inspired it, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, it was uh, it was the invincible year, of course. And yeah, they'd been battered at Highbury. So that was interesting context. So too was the fact that they had to start the game without Vieira, without Wiltord, who was a key man at the time. Lauren as well, who was who was the regular right back, he was missing. So so they were reduced in in numbers but and actually the start of the game Arsenal didn't play particularly well if memory serves me right they were kind of under the cosh um scored against the run of play and at half time it was one all and and you thought well this is going to be really tough but then Henri and co and Lundberg as well was brilliant they just clicked into gear I mean the third goal which I think came in the between the 80th and 90th minutes was sensational from defending their own corner counter-attack Henri Travel with the ball from the halfway line to the box. And I don't know if you remember the goal, but he's, he's one-on-one with Zanetti, who was brilliant. Zanetti was an outstanding defender in, in Italian football. And he basically just twisted him up. He went one way, he went the next, and then spanked it into the bottom corner. It was brilliant. And Arsenal scored two more goals really late on. It was, it was a sensational performance. And I, I do think that that, that that win gave the team belief that they were a little bit special and that, that they could become champions. Maybe not at that point did they think they would be invincible in the league, but but it gave them so much more belief. Yeah, very, very special night because, look, Italian teams at that point were so strong and especially defensively. Yeah, as Wenger said afterwards, you know, not in my wildest dreams could I have predicted this, which gives you an idea of, of the magnitude of it, doesn't it? Yeah, it was all right. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I just. I, I can't do this on on uh, while it's being recorded. <laughs> no, to be fair, it was. Um, yeah. I don't think I was ever more impressed by that team than I was that night. That was yeah. just uh, yeah. honorary, especially the goal Adrian's talking about. It's one of those timeless ones that you can watch again and again and again and still find new details in today. It shows actually everything about him in one move everything about him that was great and absolutely you you add Zanetti into that context and it just it you know it's it's quite the frame it's a an amazing piece of football especially that that second half that really was yeah in in that 2001 uh, 02 season Arsenal got through to the second phase but you know didn't qualify after that they had then to look back at that 3-1 win over Juventus it was their first points in that phase that game was a triumph wasn't it aid for Freddie Lundberg two goals yeah. started and ended the scoring yeah well it was brilliant Freddie Lundberg and he that was pretty peak Freddie I'd suggest um, scored a couple of goals also that night Henri I mean Highbury was prickling it really was Highbury under the lights on those European nights was, was fantastic Henri against Buffon about 25 almost 30 yards out clips it over the wall into the top corner I mean to do that against Buffon is a measure of Henri at, at that point, which was early Henri brilliance, 2001, of course. Yeah, it was a great result. I think, I think actually, as well as being a triumph for Lundberg, it was a triumph for Wenger, because until that point in the Champions League, Arsenal hadn't really taken that many huge scalps. 
But this was a proper scalp. This was this was the old lady, you know, Davids, Trezeguet, Del Piero, Nedved. Turan was playing for them as well. Buffon, of course, Zambrotta. This was a very strong Juve team. And they took the scalp and they they played brilliant counter-attacking football that night. The the moment for me, though, was the last goal. It was it was Burkamp brilliance. I don't know if you remember it, but it was a counter-attack. It was a pirouette, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was a yeah. counter-attack. He did a 360 and then he did a, a crazy sort of around-the-world spin and then flicked the ball over a defender for the for the on-rushing Lundberg. It was... I talked about Alexander-Arnold you know, producing my favourite ever assist and, and I stand by that, but, but when watching that one back from Bergkamp, it wasn't half bad. You know, you know what people forget about that game is the save Stuart Taylor made yeah. at nil-nil. Mm. Um, Stuart Taylor, what, yeah, he yeah, played. Absolutely. He, he started in goal. <laughs> Matt, Matt, Matthew Upson started at centre half, yeah. and um, I think Pal, um, Pavel Neved went through on goal. I think it was about twenty minutes in, one on one, really, really, really good block. I think Neved also got booked for diving later in that game. That might mm. be another one, but it's um, mm. yeah, that was uh, if if that goes in, it's a completely different match. Yeah, great shout on Taylor and Upson. I think that was their their greatest. Uh, yeah, you know, night, night in an Arsenal shirt for sure. Okay, now, well, since we're on uh, Glory Glory Arsenal, um, <laughs> your tournament has a, an Arsenal connection, doesn't it? Your great tournament? Yeah, I just wanted to look back at Euro 92, if we could. Yeah, it was one of those, I was a, I was a youth team player at the time at Arsenal, and a lot of my contemporaries, a lot of my teammates were, were there. And a future teammate ended up being the, the star of the tournament, in a way. I mean, he wasn't the best player in the tournament, but, but yeah, John Jensen famously scored the, the winning goal in the final against Germany, the mighty Germany, 2-0. But yeah, it was, a, it was a crazy tournament, not least because Denmark only only went there on a week's notice after Yugoslavia dropped out and went on to win it. So it was one of the great underdog tales, wasn't it? But yeah, John Jensen, I mean, what a, what a tale. I mean, he scored the goal and it felt like weeks after I remember him turning up at Highbury in a sort of long trench coat, as, as was the fashion back then. And and <laughs> yeah, some shocking. And I have to say, actually, John Jensen was a really nice guy, but hands down, the, the worst dresser I've ever seen. I mean, Scandinavians were a little bit rascal anyway. They they put the, they pushed the boundaries. Um, but he he would always wear open sandals and, and, and a white sock combo. And you just thought, come on, what is going on here? He'd get ribbed mercilessly, mercilessly but yeah, he didn't care. Um, really nice guy. But just a very, yeah, I hope you wouldn't mind me saying this, a very ordinary footballer. Very ordinary. He wasn't quick. He, you know, he could put his foot in and he could pass the ball, you know, 10 yards very competently. But, you know, a longer range passing wasn't really... His thing. He was neat and tidy, hard working, and that was it. But, 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 yeah, he. You can't take that moment away from him, can you, Mike? Um, scoring for the Danes, the winning goal in Euro '92. Yeah, and apart from that, Seb, it was Graham Taylor look away now, wasn't it? Two goalless draw, and then that defeat by Sweden. Yeah, I and mean, that Sweden game. I mean, it's remembered for the Brolin goal and what his career subsequently wasn't throughout the rest of the '90s. But yeah, just an absolute disaster. And obviously the Lineker anecdote, which created the sort of the atmosphere around Taylor heading into 1994. Can I, can I actually just give a quick shout out to, to Holland, uh, Denmark in the semi-final? Because mm-hmm. um, that's one of the best games I've, I've, I, 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 at that point in my life, I would think I'd have been about uh, coming up to my eighth birthday just to make you two feel old again. Um, <laughs> it, one There's of the best theme games. here. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I I got to take these these pluses where I can find them at the moment. The morale's pretty low in isolation. But yeah, honestly, one of the most engaging games of football I, I think I've still ever seen and, and Van Basten missing and Schmeichel oh. saving and, you know, just a, a, just a fun tournament. You know, I, I think I think it came at the point in my life where I wasn't as wrapped up into in the the consequences of everything and the kind of where's this player going to play as a result of his performance in this tournament. It was just football for the sake of football, and I just—it's one of my favourite memories actually. That yeah. tournament, that Dutch team were unbelievable. Uh, absolutely I mean, absurd Dutch team. Yeah. I mean, I mean the names: Koeman, Rijkaard, Rudhulit, Van Basten, Bergkamp, Bergkamp. both De Boers, yeah. all playing in the same team. For Denmark to beat them, albeit on penalties, was amazing. Have the on... Van Brooklyn in goal as well. Yeah, yeah, and the, the yeah. former Forest goalkeeper. Oh, yeah. they were an awesome team. Well, on the Graham Taylor. Now, it, it, tactically, 
he had a nightmare in the tournament. It was a poor decision to take. It was his final international appearance, by the way, wasn't it, Lineker? Coming off just after the hour for Alan Smith. Just one short of Bobby Charlton's England record. But tactically, he made some weird choices. I remember Carlton Palmer playing in a back three. That was he was a bit, sort of a sweeper, was bit, wasn't he? That was a bit of a low light. But in his defence, the injuries were ridiculous ahead of that tournament. There was no Gaza. I think John, John Barnes pulled out at the last minute with a Achilles problem. There was no fit right backs. Gary Stevens, Lee Dixon, Rob Jones, all top players at the time, were all injured. So he, he was a little bit hamstrung in terms of the, the talent pool. But but yeah, it wasn't it wasn't pretty, was it, from an England point of view? And remember, we were we'd been World Cup semi finalists under Bobby Robson just two years previously. So it was a it's a real come down, wasn't it, Mike? Yeah, it was. And, you know, that was the tournament that gave us Taylor the turnip. You know, the football business sometimes does get personal. I'd grown up with Graham Taylor as a manager. He was really the first manager I worked with when I was a kid at Watford in the local paper. And I had to write a really critical piece about him during that tournament. And I did so knowing that it would hurt him Mm. and also hurt his family. Um, Yeah because I got to know them pretty well. And sometimes in this game, you know, you do things which sometimes trouble you, but you have to, you have to be true to the occasion. You have to be true to the, the events. So I hope, and I, and I do feel that, that Graham Taylor in the end got the credit that he deserved as a football manager, but also as a man. And on that note, you know, thanks to you for joining us here and please stay safe out there. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.